two bottles of sake in one night is ever a good idea. I am sitting here severely hungover, and part of me thinks recording a podcast for you is a good idea right now. It's probably a better idea than a drunk podcast, but we're just going to go with it on episode 308 of Canada's Pinball Podcast. What I'm going to do for you on this episode is I'm going to read you a statement from my master. Now, those of you who have enjoyed the master episodes in the past uh thank you for your uh for your kind words about him now a lot of you have not enjoyed the voice i've done and the slow nature of those shows so what i'm going to do is just going to read you what he wrote me not in any different voice um i'm not a jedi master sort of padawan in learning Canada. it'll just be me okay so you're going to get that it's coming up soon and i think it's really great it's like having an incredible movie script in my inbox of my email, and I just haven't read it for you guys, so I think you're going to enjoy that. Before that, uh, again, because I'm severely hungover, I think there's a few more emails that I missed on my last episode that I wanted to air for you guys, but first, someone sent me two questions uh, in an audio file, and you know how I feel about that. I love audio files, so that gets to bump the line. Let's play that right now. Hey, Chris, this is Brian. I'm going to try and keep this a lot shorter than 15 minutes this time. All right, I have a couple of questions that you, uh, I want to ask you and your listening audience may want to hear the answers to. So, first question is, what is your criteria or what steps do you personally take before buying a pinball? Question number two, you keep talking about the rarity and collectability of pinballs. Uh, do those play into your decisions when buying a pin? Three, would you ever consider doing your own awards, something similar to the Razzie Awards, uh, you know, stuff for like the worst of everything? Finally, question number four. You mentioned you bought a Magic Girl. Given your advice from many of your other podcasts about a wait-and-see approach, what happened with Magic Girl? Why did you not wait and see for that? Why did you just jump in to the deep end on that pin? Thanks for listening, and keep up the awesome work, dude. All right. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the question. So Brian is asking me a few things, four things. So he's asking, what goes into my pin selection process? Do I care about rarity and collectability when I buy a pin? Uh, should I do a Canada award for something and magic girl what happened there so let me just start with like what goes into my pin purchasing decision I only have room for one pin and you guys know that so when I buy a pin the most important thing for me more than anything is the theme of the game I want to make sure that the theme is appealing to me that is why the first pin I ever bought just so happened to be a theme that I loved so much, but also was a really amazing pinball machine, and that's Lord of the Rings. I didn't even know about rarity and collectability back then. The reason why I own Batman 66 is I love the theme. As a kid, I grew up watching those shows all the time. I think Batman is the perfect theme for pinball. It's so much fun just to hear the bat music, right? Here we are in Gotham City. I think it's awesome. And you know me, my, my pin ownership after Lord of the Rings, you know, I had Tales of the Arabian Nights, and which is a great pinball game. And I, you know, the theme of Aladdin and the genie and collecting the jewels, it's a, it's a really cool theme for pinball. It's not my favorite, 
Uh, but toed in is so special because of how awesome of a pinball experience it is to shoot that game. Uh, would I have liked it to be a, maybe a different theme that I'm into? Probably, but I think that game works perfectly the way it is, and I love Tales of the Arabian Nights. I just wish Lyman Sheets would have coded it and it had a little bit more to keep it in the collection because I'll, I'll be honest, out of all the games I've owned, Tales of the Arabian Nights, as a pinball experience, is, I think, the greatest pinball machine out there. Uh, if it had deep code and had more to do in it, there is nothing more satisfying than, than shooting that game for me. I, that, that left ramp and how it diverts the ball like four or five different ways to do amazing things, the disappearing magnet, the shooting stars in the outlanes. I've never seen any other pinball game have such a, uh, a wow factor in, in showing people what it can do. And even like bashing the big genie lamp, everything about that game just feels special. It, it's not a typical layout. It has a lot of cool stuff going on, and to me, that's what I'm dying to get back in pinball. The problem with owning a Tales of the Arabian Night is how boring it gets quickly because, again, there's just not a lot to do in the game. All right, uh, Magic Girl. Why did I get out of it? And then I'm going to go to the award thing last. Why did I get out of Magic Girl? Um, or why did I go? No, sorry. The question was, why did I get into Magic Girl without playing it? And the answer is really simple. You, you, I had a move. I knew they were making them. Nobody had played it. Nobody knew what was going to come out of uh, American Pinball's factory. They, we did not know if it was working or not working. Uh, I basically inked a deal with someone who owned the game, Kim Mitchell, amazing guy, and I bought his spot for Magic Girl and his, and his deposit for Raza in, in one. So basically I paid $23,000 for a Magic Girl. Now here's the thing. They were only making, I think, twenty maybe 25 in total. And that's how much I paid and because there was no opportunity to play it. It wasn't like I could drive over to American Pinball. And in hindsight, that might have been smarter and actually see what the game was. Uh, the first time I learned that Magic Girl was a joke was from Chris Marquette, a coin taker. He calls me up and he's like, this thing's a fucking joke. I'm like, and I literally, my heart sank because I knew I bought one for $23,000. And he's like, thing doesn't even plunge. Like there's no... The shooter lane doesn't even have like, it's not even cut with a groove, like nothing works in the game. And I literally just started laughing because I knew what would come my way. And and then if you go on YouTube, you'll see my videos. I was the only one. And think about all the people who bought. There are like 25 Magic Girls out there somewhere, 20 out there somewhere in the world. How many other owners actually went onto YouTube and shared with you the actual experience of owning that game. I mean, it's terrible. And can imagine me. I, I mean, I spent $23,000. I'm standing there and Brenda's filming me tell the world what a piece of shit it is. And it, and it it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Magic Girl is beautiful. It, it is one of the most visually stunning things you could ever stand over and none of it works. So it, it, it that's that's why I went in though because if it had worked, and I went in early and I got one. And again, I'm a speculator on, on rare pins. And imagine if Magic Girl was as magical as Toten, and there's only 20. The value of those things would have been like fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 easily. The way that game looked, the way if it played the way it was supposed to, it would have been a special thing to stand in front of a Magic Girl and flip it. And everyone who bought it felt that way, that they, they were in on a rare thing that if it was 
as great as his games prior would have skyrocketed in value. And that is truth. That is the truth. It would have. Fuck $65,000 for a Twilight Zone prototype bullshit. Like, that's the dumbest thing I'm seeing right now. That game's not worth that. They made so many Twilight Zones. There's thousands of them out there. If there were only 20 magic girls that worked and the game was magical, it would it would it would just it would be the grail pin that people would seek after and I would have got in early at 23k. Instead, I sold mine for $20,000 and nowadays I don't even think you can sell them for what people paid, which is 16 because the jig is up and they're going to be remade. All right. Let me go on to why I don't do an awards and I'm actually thinking I might do one next year. Now, I don't want to do like a worst of. I, the Torpies exist, head-to-head create the Torpies. I, I, why would I do the worst of? <laughs> I mean, I think if anything I do on this show, I'm always trying to get to the best versions of things in pinball. And so what I'm going to do next year is I'm going to create what I'm calling Canada's Kudo Award. And if you get a Canada Kudo, you're going to get a sort of laminate plastic face of Canada, the anime figure, not my face, his face. Um, and I will and I will mail it to the people who are recipients of Canado's Kudo Award. And here's the great thing about the Canado Kudo: only I get to vote, so no one else gets to to vote. I, I actually was just laughing. I'm hung over here. I get a text message from Ed Robertson. You know Ed, lead singer, Bare Naked Ladies, amazing pinball fan. I get a text message that says, "I voted for you in the Twippies as the best pinball mod," and I just started laughing. I mean that that's. That made me laugh. It made my, my hungover head feel a little bit better. Um, thank you, Ed, for voting for Canada's Pinball Podcast as the best mod in pinball. Uh, look, and the voting's up, so it's over. I can say whatever I want now, and you can't take back your vote. Uh, and I'm going to say a little stuff before I read my, from, a word from my master. Uh, let me read a few more of your emails, and then I'll get to like the some of the, some things are just on my mind. But let me start at the top. So Stern Investors. Hi, Canada. This is from John Gardner. Hi, Canada. Great podcast. In the last one, you said Gary Stern and his senior team must have a passion for pinball. Absolutely. I don't doubt that for a moment. But then you added that their investors must share that passion. Perhaps, but I read they were initially reluctant to get involved with pinball at all. That's from an interview with Dave Peterson, chairman of the company which owns Stern. I guess that Stern's investors are a bit more interested in silver dollars than silver ball. Only a guess I mind. Um, if you don't see that interview in Pinball Magazine, you can see it here. All right, so thank you, John, for sending me that note. Of course, the, you know the in, the holding company of Stern Pinball, the the investors who bought Stern, are, are those guys should be financially minded, like right when you're when you're buying companies, the goal is to make a profit, and they're profit driven. Now, look, it's also with that investor capital. Uh, that got stern to where they are in terms of the new factory, the new employees, the the ability to manufacture at a faster rate, at a more profitable rate, at a more efficient rate. And that is all because of the investors. Now, look, we've all witnessed the pros and cons of that growth, right? So for, you know, for some reason, the, the cabinets got cheaper. For some reason, like certain things that were in games were no longer in games before. A, a lot of stuff that... If you look at it, if you look at Lord of the Rings and Stern games from that era, they uh, era, sorry, not error, uh, they 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 were more solid in a way, and and I know that's a weird way to talk about it, but there there were just questionable moves with Stern games that 
that seemed to be strange and they took a long time to get to LCD technology. But nowadays, nowadays you get a Stern Pro, you get LCD, you get great code and you get metal brackets in your cabinets and we're not going to see cabinet splitting. So, you know, I think they pushed it a little too far in the cost saving area and I think they've come back. And I don't think you can look at a game like Munsters and be like, this company is just cost-cutting, parts-bin company. I, I don't think that's the case anymore. But we definitely saw uh, a time when they were cutting corners. All right, I got an email from Paul Robinson that says, node board repair. Seems to me the guy to ask how repairable they are is Ben Heck. I seem to recall he touched on this with you maybe two interviews back. I recall he said Stern could have saved a bunch of money on them had they not used so many through-hole components. Assuming I recall that correctly, anything through the hole could theoretically be repaired, though perhaps not easily. I have two Spike 2 games, uh, Aerosmith Pro and Iron Maiden LE, and have zero issues with node boards, but fully intend to, to try to repair them myself if the time comes. Well, thanks, Paul. And I will ask Ben Hack if node boards can be repaired and how easily. All right. I got an email from Dave Sanders friend of the show, highway pinball employee designer. And you know Dave. We all know Dave. Uh, so Dave actually, he worked on the game that you guys know as uh, Angry Birds, Alien, and what else? So I think the full throttle. So I, I, I just threw out Angry Birds. I don't know if he worked on Angry Birds. I know Angry Birds was a concept, but I want to read you what he wrote me about Angry Birds. So he wrote, so here's a story with the Angry Birds game. This was early on, I think it was still 2012, when the flyer pitch document was put together. Andrew wanted a license to put on the blocks as soon as was practical, and I had been putting forward Angry Birds as the obvious video game tie-in candidate for a pinball machine as far back as 2009. The document was done over the course of multiple all-nighters by myself at the same time as the Playfield Concepts with Phil Dixon providing the renders based on the provisional CAD blueprints and sketch drawings of toys that I was giving him and what I expected them to be able to do. What you see on the flyer isn't quite what I had in CAD form. It's more of a mock-up anim animation of two different playfield iterations as there was concern from Phil's end that I wasn't leaving enough mechanical space underneath the original castle drawings stipulated a thinner structure. Looking back on what I'd planned, costs would have absolutely killed the game. It's not that it was overly complex, just so many coils and mechs in it. This was way before any form of manufacturing was even considered. We were still in R&D mode and weren't thinking about expenditure. And this early into my career, my design ambition was equally naive about such things. Mechanically, I was basing the toys on principles that I already knew would be sound and would require no reinvention of the wheel, as it were. Everything was designed to either pop up and down, rotate, or bolt. The Angry Birds slingshot application was straight out of Black Rose. The pigs were medieval madness trolls, and the kicker ejects, instead of slingshots, were inspired by EMs like Space Mission as I was keen to do something non-standard with pop bumpers and such. They had a purpose too, as using switches above and below the screen that the ball would trigger with each firing, the player could time the eject to hit targets that would move around the screen. 
Ultimately, the real reason the license fell through, and I've mentioned this on Pinside before, wasn't that the game was rejected. It was the Harry Potter conundrum. Rovio held their brand image in high regard, and still do, and insisted that any machine had to be home use or family-friendly locations only, so no pubs or barcades or any place with slots, a big thing in the UK, and so forth. Not only was that a big chunk of the operator market gone right there, it was also something that we had the sense to realize we couldn't possibly guarantee where the machines would end up. But it was a decent learning exercise, if nothing else, and would probably dodge an early bullet by not attempting anything that ambitious. Wow. Well, Dave, first of all, thank you for such a a candid uh, story there. There's a lot there that you're being honest about that, you know, there was a flyer with stuff on it that would have been really hard and and not be cost effective to make and would have, you know, I mean, ultimately... (laughs) Highway sunk because of, of of many other bad decisions that that Andrew and Co made, um, and also you know the whole notion that they wanted to guarantee that this wouldn't end up in bars. I would have just made the game, and that's a weird thing. Imagine that in a contract, we're gonna make this, but this can't end up in a bar. Well, then you make a game without any coin slots. So then you do that, and you say, look, no operator is gonna put this on location because they can't make money. Are we good? We're good. Let's go. I think that's an easy way around it. I think Beatles tried to do that. I think Beatles was meant to have no coin slots, right? And they they put him in because people like Hilton complain. But the, at the end of the, at the end of the day, I'm not going to say that it's not the end of the day. It's the beginning of the day. Um, it's a bad theme for pinball, though. Strange that you guys were contemplating that being the video game that would translate over to pinball. I, I think if you're going to make a pinball machine based on a video game, I think you still go to the same error. Era of, <laughs> I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it right one day. Uh, you, you go to the era of of video games that appeals to the pinball guy, and those would be the games that they played in the arcades when pinball was also hot. So anywhere from mid '80s to mid '90s would be the sweet spot. You'd want stuff like Tapper, a Donkey Kong pin, a uh, yeah, I almost said Street Fighter. It's the worst pin ever, but you'd want something like that. You know, you'd want something like a Zelda or Super Mario Brothers that would translate over into pinball in a better way. But Angry Birds is too recent. So the old guys who buy pinball are not into it. And then it's it just doesn't translate as well as we saw on the schematics. But anyway, very interesting story, Dave. Thank you for sharing the, the, the tale with us. And I know the listeners are, are, are appreciative that you, you went very uh, transparent with, with that. So let me go to some other emails before. Let me see if I can find one before I do the master episode. You know what? I'm just going to go into the master one because it's long and I want to read it for you. And sit back, crack open a beer, maybe pour yourself a whiskey. This is the hungover version of Canada's Pinball Podcast. Before I do this, I just want to say I saw a photo recently of Jack, and I think it was like a replay magazine with a game covered up, and ne- you know, it was like in between Dialed In and, and Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like, I bet there's nothing under there that's new. Someone sent me that photo. I'm like, I bet it's a TNA under there. Anyway, I just want to say for the record, and you've heard me say this before, the Pirates of the Caribbean topper is the biggest joke in pinball right now to me. I mean, what a fucking... What, you make a $10,000 game, and that's the topper for it? 
The fact that Jack does not offer the the ship in a bottle topper to every LE owner is is idiotic. And I hope Yellow Bird and the mod couple and somebody figures out a way to put a better topper on top of that game. I mean, when I look at it, it, it looks like it's like you w- wearing a tuxedo and wearing a baseball cap into a nice restaurant. That's what that topper looks like. Anyway, all right. Let me talk about Let me read you Canada's Master. Now, no no, just like imagine the 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 music chimes in right here. And I'm just going to read it. This is word for word what my master has said to me. And this guy is incredible. Um, he is intelligent. And I and I think we're going to see some some stuff from this guy in the future. So he writes, These things only work well and come together if you have a plan in place. Now, his, his whole thing, his title of this is Pinball Potluck. That's why Alien was such a failure. There was never a plan. Andrew just kind of added shit as they came up with it. There was no big picture. Layout guy did layout. Toy guy did toys. Animation guy did animation. Sound guy did sound. And it shows. But the animations on a pinball machine are really important. Why? Because the pinball animations aren't necessary. You don't need them for the game to work. That is where you start in regards of the design process. You start with the knowledge that if you have animations, you need to get out of the way of the game. I realize that this isn't something you think about when you play pinball, Chris, while I am thinking about it here nonstop. But the way each part of the game comes together helps make it either better or worse. And when each portion of a game is handed to a different person who is each in a different room, you end up with pinball potluck. That's why no JJP games are blockbuster successes, but fucking Iron Maiden sells out. Stern's games, at the very least, have a cohesive nature to them. Take a game like Dialed In. Look at each part. Layout, artwork, toys, animations, sound, and theme. Taken on their own, they are pretty good. The artwork for Dialed In is not bad. The logo looks great. The layout flows really nice. The toys are simple and fun. The sounds and callouts are good. And the screen is this big, bright screen loaded with info and graphics. But you put them all together, and the game is boring. Pinball potluck, bro. Alien has a great theme. Interesting layout, cool Xeno head, decent cabinet artwork, wide body, etc. But the game is just not fun or engaging. Pinball potluck. Houdini is the same story. None of the individual elements are bad, but damn, does that game just suck. I hate that fucking game. Why? Pinball Potluck. Pinball Potluck is just a nice way of saying that the company owners don't give a fuck. When a game is born out of ego and money rather than passion, the results are always the same. Part of what drives your podcast is this knowledge that these companies aren't even trying. I'm sorry, but they're just not. Jack sits in his office. Keith sits in his office. None of them wake up and say to themselves, Today, I'm going to make great pinball. Today, I'm going to make this greatest pinball game ever. And if you're not doing that, then you're just here for the cash grab. 
Your success at Weber is literally the result of you creating the best content you can. Kaneda does go into work and say that he's going to crush it every day, son. So do I. All right. Houdini, I have, to, I have to skip some stuff that I can't read to you. I'm going to keep going. And by the way, I don't do that every day. <laughs> but I try to do it as, as, as many days as, as I possibly can. You know what my biggest problem is? Is I have a small team of three people. I'm going to get back to the master, but I just want to just stop there for a second. Um, and I can't find young people to hire that have any attitude, that have any point of view, that want to make a name for themselves. And I, and I say this. You only get to great stuff in this world when you want to make a name for yourself. And that's how I try to approach my career. And I think that's what pinball needs more of is someone who wants to become famous for making the greatest game ever. And I think that's what my master is trying to get at. But let me continue with what he said. Houdini is this amorphous blob of a game. So is Oktoberfest. They are fucking clueless over there and they just don't care. Davil doesn't give a shit about how good his games are. He just wants you to buy as many of them as possible. Jack isn't trying to make the best games. Yeah, that's what he's, I said. He just wants to be known for making better games than Stern. That is a pretty big difference because those two attitudes yield some pretty different results. That's why his games are loaded with toys but not loaded with perfection. That's why he doesn't have a blockbuster. And so you go on your podcast and you point this out and people are like, why are you so mad, bro? Pinball is supposed to be fun. What is fun about Dobble making Oktoberfest? Oh my fucking God, nothing. He didn't even fucking try. Nobody there did. Balser just wanted to make it for himself, so they made it. Joe had no clue what he wanted the artwork to be like. People may say that doesn't matter, but it does. It's a huge problem. When you go to the artwork guy and you have no idea what you want the artwork to look like, you have already lost the battle, man. You're toast. Your game is toast. Because now it's not your game anymore. Some artist of the internet is deciding what it looks like, not you. And this just isn't good enough to warranty my $7,500 for your pinball machine. You're useless. Expensive 300-pound toy better be fucking amazing or I'm not buying it. And all that... And that is all Canada has ever said. That is your message. Your message is, you're not trying hard enough. If you want me to spend 10k on your game, you have to earn it. And everybody agrees with you. I don't know about that. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. You have yet to find anybody that has said, I want to buy an Oktoberfest. Your guest host owns neither a Houdini nor wants an Oktoberfest. But he would rather that API keep getting credit for their work and their efforts even though he doesn't like their products. Thank God your podcast exists because otherwise the hobby would be a jerk-off festival with even worse games. Every podcast would be yin without a yang. And since they're literally all yin, then you have to be the biggest yang possible. Every part of a pinball machine has to be great, including animations. They visually make or break a game. And most companies just aren't spending any time thinking about them or planning them out. When the time comes to create them, they just go through the motions. When you look back at the Houdini animations after watching the Big Lebowski animations, you start to notice how bad it all is. The animations on a high-res LCD are tricky because now you have to worry about things that didn't matter on DMD. 
text needs outline shading now to stop it from ble blending into the background. But if, if you just use black outlines rather than a gentle fade, it looks very stark flat. Houdini is standing next to a brick wall on a stage in front of a curtain. Kugler just dropped each image in place. The perspective is terrible on all four things. There are no clues for your eyes to follow to tell that it is 3D. There is no light, reflection, or shadows. Where is Houdini's shadow? Where is the shadow of the brick wall? Houdini, the brick, the black, the back curtains, and the brick wall are different styles of artwork and lit differently. That's why Houdini artwork all looks flat and 2D, even though it's being shown on high-res LCD. Or I should say, that is why Houdini animations are terrible. Stern, uh, sorry, stand four feet back from that screen and look at it even worse. I remember playing that at, at Expo and MGC. The animations all look like they are flat. Red backdrop. It's hard to tell if it's bricks or curtains or anything because they didn't give us any. Yet I can very clearly see that the Big Lebowski animations are at a bowling alley. The animations going under the woman's leg is clear as a bell. Look again at the sequence and you will see an ever so slight reflection of their legs and shoes on the varnish of the wooding bowling lane. Just like a real bowling alley. Not to mention the clarity of the text and numbers. They, they just use one color and yet it still looks dynamic and beautiful. I've told you before how I think animations on Metallica are gorgeous. It's just a DMD, but I think they did a marvelous job making them pop. They are super dynamic and clear, even in just plain old-fashioned red. Can you honestly say that you would prefer Houdini animations to that? No way. I prefer Metallica a hundred times over, even with the limited resolution. Old DMD animations were amazing because they were limited. They were forced to work with the limitations of the display. There were no drag and drop options available. A guy had to just sit down and draw those fucking dots out. And the result were pretty spectacular when you consider how freaking limited it was. Most everybody today just uses garbage flash animation or shitty Photoshop renderings. Guys in the old days had to draw everything themselves. Yes, it's dated, but it's dynamic and vibrant. You can clearly see what's going on. With four shades of the same color, they managed to create those animations with only 128 by 32 pixels. It's goddamn impressive. The multiball animation is fantastic. Yes, we would all prefer cool over just red, but once again, you have to kind of meet in the middle here. Somewhere between old school DMD and modern 1080p is a middle ground. The Big Lebowski nailed this, and it shows. It is a huge part of why that game was a success. If the animations look like fucking Houdini, do you honestly think people would have rushed to buy it like they did? No way. Pinball is pinball is pinball. The further you move down from that classic Williams game that people fell in love with, the less it feels like pinball. In fact, those fancy smooth graphics look fucking weird on modern games. They look like those shitty flash graphics people use on websites, you know, where the animations are just body parts moving rather than hand-drawn, programmed high-quality CGI. Dialed In has similar problems. Look at this god-awful picture that comes up when you start the game. Is that supposed to be Jack? 
The guy's fingers look fake as hell. His left arm looks fake. His shirt looks fake. His body looks like a barrel is underneath his two form-fitting shirt. His suit coat looks like it is painted onto his body. And that phone, fake. It looks like a chocolate bar with a logo on it, not a phone. Compare this to William's game when you just know it's fake, but the animations fit the game. The status report screen just looks awful. It looks like a bad PowerPoint presentation screen, but that's better, right? A DMD only shows you the score or flashes the mode you're in or the shot you made. The extra detail and information on the fancy LCD screen just make it look like you're at a damn airport. That does not look like a fun video game screen. It went from simple, dynamic, and fun to a boring overload of blah. Who is reading eight lines of scoring when it is flashed on the screen like that? Who wants that? Nobody. Oh, look, guys, it's my drone score. Hold value. My current bonus for drones is 2,500. Woohoo. And this last picture of the cityscape is present during most of the gameplay. The picture kind of scrolls around the entire time. Better, right? So much detail, right? No. They need to decide if this is a video game, a pinball machine, or a newscast. Who can even concentrate on that much shit on the screen when they're playing? Nobody. Who in the bloody hell can even read the bottom of the screen when... uh, 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 Wait, the bottom of that screenshot when playing? Oh, but wait... What about the people watching them play? What people? Pinside guys say this all the time. Like there are always five crowded around you when you're playing. When is the last time you played a pinball machine where a group of non-pinball people crowded around to watch your game while you were playing? Never. That's when. But what is even worse is than bad animation is the waste of time and money it all is. Look at the goddamn cityscape. They paid somebody to render that whole thing in 3d just spend that money on a proper toy and when you wake up in the morning and you say you are going to create the best pinball machine in the world this is not where you end up jack just wants the biggest screen with the most animation most and biggest do not mean best tbz animations smoke dialed in animations the outcome of a pinball machine is always aggregate Each part either adds or detracts from the machine. Rarely does something have no effect. And people know they don't like Houdini's animations or shot map, but they may not be able to say why. And that is something people on the rest of these shitty podcasts hate about you. You keep providing the why. Answers for everybody. Everybody else just wants you to ignore the bad parts and just say Houdini is a cool game. But it's not fair to the good games out there to ignore the bad ones. This stuff is subtle. Animation is difficult to do well. We all, we all know great examples of good and bad animation for each type of game. Classic drawn cartoons, live action with CGI animated elements, fully animated digital movies. A great example for me is Popeye cartoons. When I was a kid, I noticed there was a difference between the black and white and new, newer color Popeye cartoons. Remember when cartoons were the shit? The black and white versions just look so much better to me. They had this crazy awesome flowing quality to them, super smooth and fluid. The newer color Popeye cartoons look like shit in comparison. 
I noticed this one morning while watching the Bozo Show and waiting for the school bus. They played two Popeye cartoons. One was in black and white and the other in color. After I saw that, I started to see the same difference in everything. I noticed the same thing with 40s era Bugs Bunny cartoons as well as Tom and Jerry. There was the original stuff and there was the newer stuff. The animation was always better on the original because they didn't cut corners. They were smoother. As time went on, they just made them cheaper and cheaper. Today we live in an age of flash animation. It's cheaper, faster, and easier, but it doesn't mean it's better. All right, anything else? I'm going to leave it at that. That is a message from my master. So what do you think? What do I think of what he said? Well, look, I, I mean, I don't force this guy to say congratulatory things about this show, but I think when you try to put your finger on you know, why people aren't in love with a game like Houdini, it, it's not just the tight shots. It, it, is, it, has, it has a cool toy, but then it falls down in the animations department. You know, it has neat things, but then this falls down. And I think what my master's trying to say is a pinball machine is the sum of its parts. And all of it has to work. And the weakest element could detract from the game experience in a way that just you might not get over. And when it comes to animations, I do agree with the fact that when we limited people to just the DMD, what did that mean? It meant the world under glass had to happen. Like you had to put it there. You know, nowadays, I, I think a good example is this. Nowadays, if they designed Lord of the Rings, Balrog would be on the screen. He would be on the screen, and there'd just be a target. He wouldn't be a bash toy. The ring itself, the magnetic ring, probably would not exist. It would be on the screen. They would move so much of what was on that physical play field up onto the screen. Because it's cheaper. It doesn't break. And it's easier to do it that way. And they also could do it because they would be able to use a lot more clips from the movie versus having to put it down on the play field. And so as much as people have heralded the LCD screen, I think a lot of people also feel like the introduction of it has created uh, a sort of a lazy approach to the play field nowadays. I mean, I'd take a game like Alice Cooper's Nightmare Castle. I, I think it's the perfect example of this. You are in Alice Cooper's Nightmare Castle. And look at Chuck's playfield. It all looks like it's there. There's this big castle. You have to battle these monsters. And then you ask one question. Where are the monsters in that game? Are they on the playfield? No. For the most part, they're all on the screen. And you're just hitting switches. And that sucks. And I, that's why I would never own that game. Why do I want to battle monsters in, a, in, in Alice Cooper's castle and the sensation of battling a monster is a ball rolling over a switch versus bashing the actual monster like in Monster Bash where, <laughs> where you're literally, and, I, and that's the right use of that term there, are bashing monsters, physical Draculas and Frankensteins and, and, and you know they're, they're there. And there's movement, and, and it's it's fun, and it's you don't even need to look up. You can see down where each monster is. And so, cool. Like I'm, And that's the thing, too, is nowadays we're like, well, the animations are great. Like, even in the Twippies, the best animations. And uh, how... I, I, I basically think that less is more. Less is more. 
and and when I had Magic Girl, I'll tell you this: there was there was no animations. It was just really awesome art on a screen, and your score was up, and it was it, it works. The reason why the promise of Magic Girl was so fucking cool, it was all it was all on the play field. All these magical things that were supposed to happen, they were physically there in front of you. You could touch them. An incredible toy, an incredible moment in pinball should be tangible, not visual. I guess that's a great way to think about it. I want more tangible stuff in a pinball machine, not more visual stuff. And that is where we're at. And I think that's why it's cool that we see a lower play field in the monsters it, it looks fucking awesome it's a physical thing underneath that you're playing with these mini pinballs and you get mini multiball fucking cool anyone who thinks that is not a great thing should just just shut up we should we should applaud when they put stuff like that in there like the bowling alley in the big lebowski is one of the coolest things i've ever seen in a pinball machine so that is episode 308 of canada's pinball podcast Happy, I'm so hungover, people. Like, it, my head is throbbing, all right, just throbbing. But I just hope you know that I wake up feeling like shit and I still do a pinball podcast for you. I hope you appreciate that, that I'm taking one for the team here. I thought I'd feel better after this, but I actually feel worse. Hopefully, you feel better after listening to this. Hopefully, you don't feel worse. Um, thank you, Ed Robertson, for voting for me for the best as the best pinball mod out there. Thank you, everyone who voted for me in the Twippies. It's over now. You won't have to hear me begging for votes. We'll see how we do. We'll see how we do. Uh, it's going to be an interest. It's just two months away, though. Sucks. Like, seriously. Can't they just, like, do the show tomorrow? All the votes are tallied. Why do we have to wait two months at TPF? Why? I'm talking to you, Jeff. I'm talking to you, Zach. Why? By the time the show rolls around, the best of 2018 in March? Come on. Come on. I know why. I know it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. But just just put the results up tonight. Can we just do that? Just let me know if I need to book a plane ticket or not. All right? Love everybody. Love you guys. Love pinball. Uh, have a great weekend. Enjoy the Super Bowl. I know. This wasn't... <laughs> I wasn't supposed to do a podcast. I did it. You got it. 308. We're going to get to 400 in no time. Later.